It's time for security now. Steve Gibson's here. We'll talk about Microsoft's uh, new uh, Patch Tuesday. Wow. A USB exploit you just won't believe. And it's been in every copy of Windows until now. Plus, your questions and Steve's answers. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 395, recorded March 13th, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 163. Security Now is brought to you by Rackspace, the open cloud company. At Rackspace, build what you want, where you want, and how you want. All backed by their world-renowned fanatical support. Try it today. Download the open cloud at rackspace.com slash open. And by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files. Only $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. And use the offer code SECURITY now to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with this cat right here. Our explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen T. Gibson. The T stands for Tiberius. <laughs> He is the ex- yes, that's going to really mess up my Wikipedia page now, Leo. Someone, people are going to scramble over there. They're going to put it. Change. It's not his middle name. Do not change his Wikipedia entry. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hi, Steve. How are you? Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again on Thank Pope you. Choosing Day. We're waiting a sm- new pope to emerge any moment. Yep. Yeah. And this is 31313. I noticed that as I was assembling things. I thought, oh, I like alliteration we know and so 31313 and the day before pi day and that's correct 314 well yeah i guess we really need two more years 31415 oh pi day 2015 will be a big one. Oh, baby wait <laughs> oh, yeah 3141 31415 yeah 3.41559 3. 5, 5, 9. yeah so 9 a.m in 3 years 2 years <laughs> We're all going to be so we excited. We will have special coverage in case special anything strange happens. Day. When yeah. is the next one? Is 2038, isn't it? For Linux, for Unix, the next big. Yes, uh, 2038 Y2K. is when the 32K, the 32 bit Unix time wraps around to zero and the world as we know it comes to an end. Well, actually, it's already been extended. It goes to, to 64 bits. bits. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't come to an end. It just goes to sixty-four bits. So, what is our time? Oh, we have a Q and A today, don't we? The Q and A today. We have the the week since we last spoke has provided us with ample entertainment and shenanigans and updates and things to talk about. And uh, we're because of uh, startup delays. We're we'll do as many questions as. Oh no, we, we got time. To. Let's just. I don't. My my lateness should not affect your content. Yeah, but we don't have to push it all downstream. So, you know, <laughs> you can decide, my friend. So, um, Q&A. Start off telling our listeners. 
What about? about Matt, oh, it's Patch Tuesday why, was yesterday. About why we're here. Oh, should I tell them about Rackspace? Okay. I think you should. Yeah, and then we'll talk about Patch Tuesday, which was yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and oh, a big one was Patch. <laughs> oh, it was a big one last time. Wasn't it a record uh, last month in February? Yes. Th- 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 uh, this one isn't big in count, but it's big in something amazing that was revealed and patched. Wow. Yeah. Stay tuned. I'll tell you what I'll reveal right now. Rackspace, the open stack. You know, Rackspace, uh, I'm sure you all know Rackspace. We talk about them a lot. They're an open cloud company. They provide server services. Uh, But what's really cool about it is a few years ago, they co-founded something called OpenStack, and they now run the world's largest open cloud. What does open mean to you? It means you're not locked into a single provider. Um, OpenStack is supported in a variety of places. You can even run your own OpenStack. In fact, if you'd like to, you can download it right now at rackspace.com slash open. It means that you have the freedom to move when you're hosted on Rackspace. You can move your apps, your code, your websites between multiple OpenStack-based clouds, public, private, or, as I said, even on-premises if you wish. There are many people who will give you a hosted OpenStack, and, of course, Rackspace is the best because of their world-renowned fanatical support. I'm a big fan of Rackspace. I've known them for years, have watched them grow, get better, and then this commitment to the open platform, to OpenStack, has really just impressed the hell out of me. So I'm very glad that we could talk about it here on Security Now and invite you to try the open cloud. Rackspace.com slash open. Download, spin up, break out. Try it today. Download the open cloud at Rackspace.com slash open. We thank them so much for supporting Security Now. They, I think they appreciate what you do. I know they do. Uh, Steve Gibson, and uh, that's just part of the Rackspace philosophy is smart users make great customers. So let's uh, let's talk about Patch Tuesday yesterday, second Tuesday of okay, the month. Okay, so so what was revealed, and this wasn't th- th- these were there were there were three privately reported vulnerabilities that Microsoft closed among the twenty that were closed yesterday that were aggregated into seven sets of patches that pretty much covered. The works Windows, IE, Office, Silverlight, and SharePoint um, across all applicable operating systems. The uh, four of those were four of those sets were rated critical. And what's interesting is the most interesting one was only given the rating of important, even though it's you gasp when you hear about it. But that's because to get a critical rating. A vulnerability must be remotely exploitable with no user intervention. So, you know, it must be, as we've used the term before, wormable, where if a worm got loose on the Internet, it could reach into machines and and propagate, as we have seen with Code Red and Nimda and so forth in the past. So those get critical. The one that's interesting, they only gave an, an important to because it's a physical presence hack, yet... It is amazing. Now, in Microsoft's typical... Physical presence means you can't do it unless you are actually at the workstation, at the yes, computer. Yes, yes. It's much, but, less, but much what, less of a vulnerability. What it, it, what it empowers people to do makes you gasp. And so in, in typical, you know, they just co- they copied and pasted something they wrote four years ago, and they keep repeating it. They say the, the, the title of this was Vulnerabilities 
in kernel mode drivers could allow elevation of privilege, which, you know, it's like, oh, well, that doesn't sound good, but, oh, okay, elevation and privilege. Okay, so Microsoft says on, in their blog, today we're addressing a vulnerability in the way that the Windows USB drivers handle USB descriptors when enumerating devices. Uh-oh. Okay, I, so I, that means, uh, so the drivers are in the kernel, USB descriptors is part is not part of like the file system on a USB drive. Those problems we've seen before. The USB descriptors is down in the USB protocol stack. And it turns out there were bugs there. So continuing, Microsoft says, this update represents an expansion of our risk assessment methodology to what what BS. Oh anyway, to recognize vulnerabilities that that may require physical access but do not require a valid logon session okay now there was no such thing before but this created that methodology Mm. for this reason and they say windows typically discovers usb devices when they're inserted or when they change power sources for example if they switch from plugged in power to being powered off the USB connection itself. To exploit the vulnerability addressed by MS-13-027, an attacker could add a maliciously formatted USB device to the system, which means plug it in. When the the Windows (laughs) USB device drivers... Enumerate, which means you know, scan. See, what do we got here? Device. What do we got here? Yeah, yeah. What just arrived? Yeah. And you know, you you, you always hear that gunk sound, which which when when boom, Windows boom. says, oh, boom, someone boom. just plugged something in. Yeah, exactly. Boom, boom, boom. So when they enumerate the device, parsing parsing a specially crafted descriptor, oh lord, the attacker could cause the system to, and again, could yes, uh huh, can cause the system to execute malicious code in the context of the Windows kernel. Could, but only if he wants to. <laughs> yeah, only if he, if that was his intention. Only if he chooses to. <laughs> only if he, if he designed his USB device to do so. Because the vulnerability is triggered during device enumeration, no user intervention is required. In fact, the vulnerability can be triggered when the workstation is locked or when no user is logged in, making this an unauthenticated elevation of privilege to kernel level for an attacker with casual physical access to the machine. Other software that enables low-level pass-through of USB device enumeration may, may open additional avenues of exploitation that do not require direct physical access to the system. So what all this means is that there has been a problem which this patch fixes such that it was possible to exploit a defect in the wind and all windows operating systems across the board for all time apparently where you simply plug something into a machine whether it's in use 
or not, if it, just if it's powered up. You don't have to be logged in. It could be a server where no one is typically logged in at the console. It could be a machine which has been locked, and so you've got to oh, type in a password in order to access it. No, not necessary. You just slip this little thumb drive in the side of the machine, and you take it over. So that's that amazing. Was not, that is amazing. Not, criti- not critical, Leo. That was not critical. That was just important. <laughs> But it, of course, glad. what it means is somebody could create a thumb, could have a thumb drive, go to a library or somewhere with public computers, and boom, 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 oh. boom, boom, just take them and over. And what it means, what it means also is that what we're seeing now is all of these patches are being immediately reverse engineered. Right. So while this was privately reported to Microsoft, yeah. and there wasn't apparent, there wasn't known exploitation yeah. of it in the wild that will exist tomorrow does and it need auto run i mean no because it no, automatically no. runs these drivers when yes, you install this when is you stick at, it in. this is in the at the kernel level not at the file system auto run what is that kind of you know parsing we keep wow. we've had all of those and so finally microsoft gave up and just turned that off under duress because oh that was going to make it harder to use their operating system wow. so no no this is just you know, you at the low level, at the hardware level, the Windows hardware drivers see the uh, that something has appeared, and in querying it for its specs, it it has a way of 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 misusing the driver, essentially a buffer overflow style attack in the kernel that allows it to just take over the machine. And of course it's got the rest of the drive right there to provide all of the files and and malware that it needs to squirt in while it's doing it. So yeah. So this is one, you know, you want to update. <laughs> not that there are any that you don't, but you know, there, it would be good to do this and not wait long because there will be this is uh, this is people are going to be having fun with this. Well, meanwhile, there you go. Not, there you have it. Left, not to be <laughs> left out, Leo. Yeah. The fourth update in as many weeks of Adobe's Flash. We've had basically one a week. Uh, well, Flash now, is in a race with Java to see who can be uh, compromised most in the month. Yeah, actually, I think Java may be inching ahead, but we'll talk about that next. Flash is, is catching up, though. There's, yeah, yeah, so Jeez. we're now at 11.6.602.180 for Windows and Mac platforms. As I said, the fourth update in as many weeks. Uh, this addresses four known security flaws in Flash Player. But unlike the previous emergency Flash updates, Adobe didn't wait, which is probably wise. Because as we know, last time they waited and people, and then they thought, oh, well, you know, we knew that there, that this was a problem, but we were going to be updating when we could. So this time they're they're just pushing it out immediately. Um IE10 and Chrome both update automatically. Um, Firefox is getting better about that. Um, Safari has pretty much locked it down, so you're less exposed. Um, you know, with that end with Java, so you know we're we're seeing the industry adapting as well as it can. And unlike Java, which fewer people have a need for, um, you know. 
anyone who uses iOS devices is running into the annoyance of not having Flash on iOS. But the flip side is you don't have the security problems. Well, yeah, even Adobe uh, has stopped making a, a mobile Flash even for Android. So it really, Adobe says, you know, we don't, you don't want it on a mobile device. But you yeah. do kind of sort of have to have it on a, on a desktop computer still. Yeah, I do think I like what, I, you know, I'm still, Firefox is my primary browser and with no script, and it has it has this stuff locked down so that unless I am somewhere where I trust and I really know that I want to, like, play Flash, then I click, you know, it's it's the click-to-play approach where I click on it and then it enables Flash. That's, that's probably on, the right way you know, to do it, yeah. On that page. I really think that is. That way you're just, you're less prone to, the, the normal approach is Flash is embedded non-visually on a site that is you know it's some some links are changed and there's just a little flash plug-in embed that isn't like here play click here to play this video it just sneaks something by on a site that doesn't otherwise isn't obviously a flash host and so so fire so anything that that requires click to play flash completely protects you from that so you know and and no script and firefox of course are among those but as I said, Java is not to be left not to be left behind. Many people tweeted me the link to the new days since the last Java vulnerability site, um, and, and I can't remember what it's like Java Zero Day dot com or something. Um, but the point was, I got a nice tweet from Michael Horowitz uh, in New York who said, "Steve, just an FYI, there are now." As of March 8th, so that was Friday, 12 known and currently unpatched bugs in the Java software released all of four days ago, which we talked about last week. That, that was version 7, update 17. Um, five, uh, um, um, like seven new ones were found since then. Uh, uh, our friend Adam Gaudiak has been busy. Um, anyway, Michael has a site that looks kind of nice. If you're somebody who's stuck using Java, you have to use it. You might want to check out javatester.org. Um, that's Michael's site. I went there. looks nice. He does some testing of your browser, See how, seeing how, you know, like if Java is truly disabled in it. And he's done some digging into how the various browsers handle that setting in the Java setup where you can say remove it from my browser you know i updated and i went through the through in, in windows to through the windows control panel to the java applet and on the on the first page that comes up of the tabbed dialog it says it said java is enabled in this browser and it's like oh and then it says go to the security tab to change this so you go to the security tab uncheck that enable java in the browser and then it, and I went back to the first page and it said Java is not enabled in the browser. But there's been some concern that it seems to be re-enabling itself because I had turned it off before and it turned itself back on with an update. So it's, it's worth doing after you update until maybe they will start disabling it by default and only turning it on when people need it. But so uh, these are now known bugs in the latest Java and, you know, we imagine they will be surfacing in the wild before long because that never seems to uh, take very long. 
Um, and I, ha I have a note. Somebody suggested another acronym for Java that was kind of clever. But so far, just another vulnerability announcement seems apropos. <laughs> That's pretty good. To this one, yeah. <laughs> and several people tweeted that the issue of Apache and the do not track politics with IE10 had been solved or resolved. And that so we've talked about this many times. And the source code that was in the config, the httpd.config file was commented as deal with user agents that deliberately violate open standards. And then there was, and, and my, my upset <laughs> over this was in, that. In other words, Internet Explorer. In, in an IE 10, yes. Um, IE. So, IE. <laughs> yes, or yes. EGIE. Um, so um, on, on, on the GitHub site, there is some dialogue about this. And the, the anchor posting I liked because it was one of the main thinkers about this who said uh, this is exclusively regarded – Oh, I'm sorry, that was on the Apache.org Bugzilla site. said this is exclusively re regarded as a bad idea because Apache is the wrong point to add this setting. DNT does only matter for a very small subset of servers, i.e. those of ad agencies. So this will, one, result in unnecessary processing for most installations, and two, the DNT header will only be processed at a higher level, for example, PGP, where this check could be made. With this setting, Apache is stealing information from the actual processing logic that will handle the DNT header, which is a good point because that means because Apache is not removing it unless it sees that your user agent is IE10. So your, and this was my argument, was that it shouldn't be at the server. It ought to be at the, at the application level. So then he says, second point, this is damaging to the reputation of the Apache project as it shows people hiding their personal political agenda in open source software. And, and he wrote, German publisher Heis is already reporting about this. And he said, using this setting would mean also people who explicitly decided the the to use dnt will be ignored which is a much which is a much worse case than using the dnt setting from people who don't care and he said whether dnt should default to 0 or 1 and he, and he said let's face it there will always be a default unless you require the user to set this on first launch of the browser with only the buttons enable disable or quit browser which will never happen, he said, is something to decide by the specification, not by Apache. And finally, unlike what the comment says, IE10 actually asks the user about DNT when Windows 8 is installed, as shown in the link thread above, making the point comment or er, making the point of this commit invalid. It does that ask, but it asks that with a number of other things in somewhat fine print. So true. Yes. Um, anyway, so. A number of people got it onto the thread, had a very nice discussion, and essentially um, Roy, 
who 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 committed this to the config file update lost and it is now it's still there but all commented out interesting so it is interesting. gone by default yeah. from apache but if you were for if you if your own feelings said i want to enforce this against ie10 well it's there and you can take the comments out and you know the work is done for you and this by the way is why i like open source software because this discussion happened in public uh, and everybody yep. had a chance to speak um i yep. think they came to the right conclusion well um, and in fact our our friend at stanford whose name is escaping me um i referred to him last week he's the privacy and tracking guy who's part of the w3c anti-tracking committee he, his responses in this thread were really well informed and well thought out, and he was able to bring the exact perspective of the committee, saying that that this is not what we want to do. Yeah. It is not a non-compliant browser. Those decisions have not yet been made. So you know, so it's like this was. If if anything, it was. I mean, the least it was was premature because this was jumping the gun relative to where the current thought is on the whole issue. So again, I, I, to me, this is all interesting stuff because it's, a, it's evolving and it's what's happening right now are how do we deal with the tension that exists between privacy on the internet and monetization on the internet. And you know, those are, those are two forces that are in tension with each other. So um, and my question, uh, actually, a good question from the chat room is: Is there any way to know if a browser, how, what, how, if the Apache has been compiled with this on? <clears throat> I mean, I guess not. I mean, you could look at the traffic. I guess. I don't know. Good question. I don't remember what the patch does. I have it here. Let me scroll back to it. If it does, it fake the. Um, ignores it or it apparently. If you have IE ten, it it changes the header to say that it's unset meaning that there's been no regardless decision of made. whether it's been set correct right so it, it I guess you whether could if you and, oh, that, that was one of the other points made further down in the thread is that if a user did deliberately set it or unset it and was using ie10 then apache was go if this was in place deliberately of ignoring their explicit choice right so apache has no way of knowing whether the an ie10 user did or did not want tracking, even if they did or did not, Apache was not going to provide that information up to at the application level running on the server. Right. So just all around a bad idea. That's not the job of the server. That's, you know, that was my technical, from a technical standpoint, independent of how you feel about it. That's not the job of the server. The server's job is to make the connection, provide the information to, you know, the app running on top of it. So, I have to say I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bruce Schneier's famous comment, attacks only get better. They never get weaker. <laughs> Got a little workout uh, also. Uh, a group of cryptographers will be uh, led by, I don't know if he's led by Dan Bernstein, who's a you know world-famous cryptographer we've spoken of often. Uh, he's, he's got that neat site, cr.yp.to. I, <laughs> I just love that. Say that again? cr.yp.to. CR.YP.TO. Crypto. <laughs> yeah, cri no, it, it, it's, it's crypto with, with dots with dot every other letter. So very cool. TO is Tonga. So you have to, you have to yeah. go to Tonga to get that. 
and then convince them that you want a two-letter domain, YP. YP.to, and then you create your server to have a CR. CR, exactly. <laughs> Love it. That's so, Bruce. Okay, so there's a lot of history here, and this is interesting. Um, we've known for a long time that there's a weakness in the RC4 cipher. To remind our listeners, RC4 was what WEP, W-E-P, the early original Wi-Fi cryptography or uh, Wi-Fi crypto used as its cipher. RC4 is itself a very good cipher. It, it uses two arrays of bytes, uh, two 256-byte arrays of bytes. And when you give it a key, the key schedule process, or it's key setup as it's called, initializes... Wait, is it two arrays? No, it's one array and two pointers. I'm sorry, because I've, I've written some RC4 myself. So it's one array, very lean. One 256-byte array of, obviously, 256 bytes. The... When you give it a key, it scrambles those in a, in a defined fashion from the key. So that's its known starting condition. Normally, you just fill the array from 0 to 255, and then you apply the key, which, and what it does is it, 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 it employs a series of swaps. So, so the two pointers are the places where you swap the bytes with each other. And so given a key, it's, it initializes this in a in a scrambled but deterministic way, so the same key always starts with the same scramble. Then, when you're using it, what it is, it, is, it, it generates pseudo-random stream. So it's a, RC4 is a stream cipher. It emits a pseudo-random stream of bytes. And we know that if you take plain text and XOR it with pseudo-random data, you get gibberish. You get pseudo-random data. You get something that surprisingly is really good encryption. And then on the receiving end, you apply the same key to the same algorithm. You get the same pseudo-random stream. You XOR at that against the already XORed data and out pops the original plain text. Very cool. The problem with RC4, though, is that due to the simplicity, essentially, of this approach, there were, first of all, weak keys. Some keys that you could give it, and you can almost sort of intuitively get that. Some keys that you would give it would not do a very good scrambling job to initialize that array. And so that was a problem. There was the weak keys problem. And the way the, way the Wi-Fi system worked back then, WEP, is that there was an incrementing value of the, that incremented over time and it could wrap around. So when it, if, if you were online long enough and it wrapped around, you would start reusing the same pseudo-random data. You'd generate the same pseudo-random data and that's a big no-no. You never want to do that with a simple XORing cipher or it's, it, it's an immediate weakness. The other problem was that it needed, RC4 needed more time to warm up. That is, as you used it, 
it continually re-scrambled. So the key initially scrambled that, that, that vector of bytes, but then as you used it, it kept scrambling it even more. Well, it turns out that the initial setup, the key setup, really it, there were some weak keys, but also there was actually some predictability no matter what key you used in the initial key stream, as it's called, the initial stream of pseudo-random data. After about 256 bytes had been emitted, then even that was lost. That is, it, it really became robust. So, and I've mentioned this before, that all we really needed to do to fix RC4 was warm it up, discard the first 256 bytes of data. So, so change the way you use the cipher so that you use the key, then you run it, you know, for enough to get 256 bytes of data out that would take no time at all. Then you've got a much better key stream. And that's one of the ways that WPA fixed this problem. WPA can use AES, but also RC4 because there's nothing, what, if you use it right, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. Although, People could also argue that putting all those those requirements on the way it's used really represents a problem for it. I mean, it's like, wait, you ought to just be able to give something a key and start using it rather than, oh, well, there's you got to be, you know, avoid bad keys and you got to warm it up for a while. So what happened is these crypto guys just, and this will be in a paper coming out shortly, completely characterized the nature of of the initial weakness in RC4. That is, it was known that some of the bytes weren't as random, no matter what the key was, as they should be. And that made people uncomfortable, you know, cryptographer people. Um, but they said, finally, okay, let's figure out exactly what this means. They nailed it so that, that the beginning of RC4 is now very well understood and this is this is a perfect reason why bruce schneier's famous quote attacks only get better they never get weaker applies is because we're we over time we develop more knowledge of the way these what seemed like it's all oh, really mysteriously complex initially you know like like you know we keep knocking off hashing algorithms one after the other because people really smart who have who have the focus are able to just chip away at it a little tiny bit just by digging deeper into it suddenly the bits don't all seem so random it's like wait a minute there's a little pattern over here what does that mean and they go off and then they come back with "Uh oh that you know this means something so here's the point because of the attacks on ssl the most recent and and, and popular attack is a so-called beast attack, B-E-A-S-T. And this was done by those two guys we talked about. One was on the beach somewhere um, uh, looking at bikinis, I guess. And the other one was home and they were corresponding and they realized that because of the use of initialization vectors in the cipher block chaining that AES was using or any other cipher that uses cipher blockchaining in SSL, there was a way that you could mess with encrypted traffic and over time gain information because the, the chain 
went from the end of one packet to the beginning of the next. That is, the, pack, the chains were linked across packets, and that allowed somebody who in, was able to inject and intercept traffic to fuss with that linkage and, and play with the cipher in a way that caused some information disclosure. So uh, the consequence of that was that it was that the recommendation has been don't use CBC-based ciphers preferentially. Use RC4 because RC4 works completely differently. It's not a block cipher. It's the block ciphers that need to use cipher block chaining as, as their, as their um, algorithm in order to do crypto so that the blocks are interdependent. We've talked about this a lot. So, for example... When I was setting up my new servers uh, just a couple weeks ago, there was a site, ssllabs.com. I recommend it to everybody. Go check it out. It's very interesting. ssllabs.com is a site which will check the SSL security of any server you ask it to. It goes and performs a series of, of SSL or TLS connections to the server. And we've talked about how SSL works. Normally, you the client who wants to connect gives it a whole list of ciphers, and then the server picks one and then says in, in, its, in its return handshake, here's the one I want to use. So it's easy, for example, to, to determine which ciphers a server supports by only giving it one. Just give it one. And if it comes back and says, I can't do that, then you know it doesn't support that cipher. And then you get a different one. And it says, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that if you're only giving me a choice of one. So the point is it's possible to remotely probe a server and learn everything about the crypto that it supports. SSLlabs.com does that. Because I was using Windows 2000 from the dark ages, I used to get a D there and users use i mean i've i've had people podcast listeners who'd say hey steve have you gone over to ssl labs and looked at what grc.com gets hmm. and it's like yeah 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 i know and it was because the crypto stack in windows 2000 was from windows 2000 it was just and old it was just old not exactly. broken just old not broken and no one was ever in any, really in any danger but you know again these are theoretical attacks and as we know they only get better over time so one of the reasons that i was really glad to move to windows to server 2008 is i got a state of the art updated stack and in fact i went to 2008 and it still did not support tls 1.0 one and 1 1.2 it did support tls 1.0 so then i jumped to r2 and because i thought if, if i'm doing all this work i don't want to already be behind on day one <laughs> yeah so for once i actually got current and uh i went to r2 and so there's I'll, an actually, argument I, for being current isn't it you know yeah there is and now sgrc gets a grade a Yay. and but not 100% on a couple. And I thought, why, why am I not getting 100%? It turns out that this guy is so picky that you've got to have 4,096-bit or larger keys. It's like, okay, you know, you know, so nobody has that. But he's being future-proof, so I understand that. At least I get an A. But I didn't at first. Hmm. When I first set up my servers, of he was, be, well, because of Beast, 
of I was vulnerable to the beast attack. And I thought, okay, well, I knew what that meant, of course. It's because the default ordering of the ciphers was such that RC4 was way down the list. And and the the idea is that you the the server chooses in the order of what it considers greatest security, but you've got to tell the server what the better ciphers are. So the default installation of Windows gives you a bad grade on SSL Labs because RC4 has pushed way down. So in, because I wanted an A at SSL Labs, so all of our, you know, so nobody would worry about GRC.com, I did what everyone does. And the, and the only thing you can do is move RC4 to the top. You have to have it first. All the advice you can find on the net is if you want to avoid the beast attack, and it's not just SSL Labs. I mean, it's actually to avoid the beast attack. The server has to say, I want to use RC4. As a consequence today, 50% of the encrypted traffic on the Internet is using RC4. Because of the beast attack, even though there's there are many many better ciphers available, we can't use them because we're, because the later ciphers, TLS 1.1 and 1.2, they fix this problem, except that clients haven't been updated. So servers like my server happily has you know the very latest cipher suites available, but if the client can't use them, then it knows about RC4. And it, that's better, some would argue, than using one of the cipher suites, which can be compromised by Beast. So, what this actually, what all this means is that the paper that has come out that has fully analyzed the first 256 bytes has identified the way that those pseudo-random bytes are much less random and much more pseudo than we wish. The consequence of that is if you were to monitor, passively monitor encrypted traffic, which where the same traffic was being repeated over and over and over, you would see the beginning of that, that beginning of that connection as it's coming up and if you were to capture the first 256 bytes of that, and we're talking, uh, I think it was four to the, th- I don't, I saw, I remember seeing, I'm, I'm sorry, two, I remember seeing a two to the 32 and a two to the 20 something. Anyway, it's millions. You have to get millions of samples. But if you do, you can figure out the plain text. You can decrypt the, that first blob of traffic. And the reason that's a concern is that browsers generally have query headers at the beginning of their query, and the query headers contain the cookie, which is your authentication. So, so again, we're having to follow a long chain of what-ifs, I realize, but again, <laughs> these things only get better. You know, and somebody will have something that runs in Starbucks before we know it. <laughs> Don't um, feel bad, by the way. But Bartman in our chat room says uh, IBM.com gets an F. So ooh, you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably running an old server, too. So, um, 
So, and see, now I'm kind of wondering, well, what should I do? Because right. I, I don't want this. Um, so, I mean, and there, so there are proposals for fixing this. The problem is it everybody would have to update their clients. All you would have to do, for example, is discard that first 256 bytes out of the RC4 stream cipher, as I mentioned before, and then the, the bytes are sufficiently pseudo-random. And it's interesting, too, because there's a, there's a chart. Um, I, mean, I meant to tweet these links, but I didn't. But if you, if you probably if you Googled attack of weak RC4 is kind of broken, I think it probably if you Googled attack of weak, RC4 is kind of broken. That's a great blog posting that links to the, the page where there's a chart showing the 256 bytes, each of the 256 bytes across the horizontal it's and the from probability. The cryptographyengineering.com. Yes, that's where it is. Yeah. Um, and then there it shows you a like a a graph of that that spikes um in sort of like a like a comb fashion where the comb teeth are shortening as it goes further out so the bites earlier are more easily determined than those later but what this ultimately allows you to do is theoretically get somebody's authentication cookie from their browser headers if you could induce millions of requests and their point was that there have been things that do that. For example, the beast attack works by injecting some JavaScript that causes your browser to make the kinds of, of queries that the beast attacker wants made. And you could also inject some JavaScript that would cause your browser to make millions of repetitive queries to Google.com, for example, which each one of those would carry the, your currently logged on Google.com cookie if you were logged on to Google. So... Anyway, uh, an interesting piece of, you know, new state-of-the-art cryptography and sort of a problem here because the industry, in trying to thwart the beast attack for currently supported ciphers, has elevated RC4 as preferential to any of the block ciphers, which really are better ciphers, because of the way... SSL3 and TLS0, I'm sorry, 1.0, the way they chained their packets together um, with cipher block chaining. This, this has been fixed in, one point, in TLS 1.1 and 1.2, but not everybody's using it yet. So uh, interesting dilemma and, you know, cool stuff just from a theoretical standpoint. Speaking of cool stuff and theory, some, a little glitch hit Bitcoin uh, just yesterday. Um, and the, what happened is really interesting because all Bitcoin implementations up until 0 0.8 used the, the Oracle Berkeley DB backend as its database. So the Bitcoin mining and the Bitcoin clients and everything, they were using... Um, this Oracle Berkeley DB 0 0.7. The developers decided to switch with the release of 0 0.8 to Google's own database, which is called Level DB. Very nice, slick, clean. Um, it's a it's key an, and. Yeah, it's a NoSQL um, 
Yes. But scales beautifully across massive uh, uh, installations. Yes. Uh, it's very cool. It's yeah. a key and value database. Right. So you're able to store, you know, basically keyed values. You say, you know, here's a key, here's a value, here's a key, here's a value. And then later you say, what's the value for this key? And right. it's able to find it. Just right. bang. The, what happened is there was a never known bug in the old Berkeley DB. Uh, oh, wow. And everybody was using it with the bug. The bug kind of kept the playing field level. But when when people began switching to 0.8, which should have been absolutely compatible, different things happened. And Bitcoin broke. Essentially, the 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 and we did a complete podcast on Bitcoin. Anybody who wants the background, I'm not going to go over the whole thing again now, but it's really neat the way it works. I mean, the technology is is so cool, but essentially it caused a fork in the what normally is a continuous movement of work of Bitcoin mining. It 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 diverged the bitcoins and caused a huge upheaval yesterday. The, I mean, they realized something was broken. Uh, I, I, I read up on all of the current discourse that I could find. And I mean, the, the gurus are still saying, okay, uh, we have to understand exactly what happened. And I mean, what, what they're telling people is that miners should immediately go back to 0.7. <sighs> they're basically going to have to kill off some of the, the forked work that was done and then figure out what to do about like moving forward. Do they, you know, like they need to exactly character. They don't even, as far as I know it, don't even yet know exactly what the problem was. It involves locking. Um, there are things called locks in a database, which you do in order to prevent data frame being modified while you're in the process of modifying it so that there aren't collisions. It's the old case where two people each read something and then they like increment it or modify it and they both write it back. Well, the first person to write it back gets what they wrote overwritten by the second person to write it back. So instead, before you, if you know that you're going to modify something, you lock it so that it's yours exclusively. You then read it, modify it and write it back. Anybody else who's trying to get to it at the same time, they have to wait until you release your lock and then they're able to access it. So, you know, this is well understood technology for multi-thread, multi-process, multi-user databases. And there was a limit on locking, which 0.7 had, and everybody had the same limit imposed because everybody was using the same database. Level DB is better and doesn't have this imposition, so its behavior subtly changed, and that broke Bitcoin. Boy, it just so, shows how complicated this stuff is. Oh, my goodness, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, and you're reading through this this dialogue of these gurus, and your, your head just spins. It's like, yeah. holy yeah. criminy. It's like just And I can see amazing. why they, don't, they can't just patch it right away, because they, have, they need to understand what the heck's going on. Makes sense. Yes. And, it's complicated. Yes, and... And work was done. Right. By, you can't I mean, throw like out the existing was, work, or I guess they might have yes. to. But Yeah. Now, I did also notice that coins are – used to be that when you, when you successfully found the magic value to make the hash 
have all leading zeros, which is part of the coolness of Bitcoin. Really, uh, any listeners who are more recent additions to our podcast, I, let me urge you to go listen to the Bitcoin podcast. I, I, back then, I did a pretty good job of sharing my love of uh, Satoshi, who was the, the guy who developed this. And it's just immaculately conceived. It's amazingly cool. Not an endorsement, and, I should point out, not an endorsement of the, the idea of Bitcoin, but merely of the technology of it. We don't. No, but what I will endorse is the fact that this thing is, has staying power, Leo. Yeah, yeah that's true. I, I, think, I think it's here to stay. Yeah. I think the world, the governments may not like it. An extra governmental currency. A, yes, a virtual internet currency, I think. There's a place for it, and I think Bitcoin is going to be it. So uh, anyway, just it is incredibly cool technology. Um, and, I, you know, I fired up Bitcoin and played with it for a couple of weeks, and I minted a coin back then. I got 50 Bitcoin, which apparently is worth about $2,500 now. Wow. So, yeah. But, but yeah, they're but, trying um, to spend it. <laughs> Remember, anywhere every, the, oh no, you, you're able to get, you're able to use any of the exchanges and turn it into cash. Actual um, cold hard American dollar. Yep. Wow. Yep. So um, back then, a single Bitcoin was a, a single ca hashing success minted you fifty Bitcoin. Not anymore. But that, Not anymore. but that drops in half every right. four years. Right. So it has been. That four-year gap since then, bitcoins now. When you when you make a successful hash, you get twenty-five bitcoin, and we should point out you were fairly lucky to get that. I mean, it's it's uh, the the odds oh. against it are high. Well, and boy, since then, this was years ago, yeah. and this was just on. It was on this little machine, a little a little i seven quad core, and I just kind of I I looked at it in one morning. It's like, oh, look, I got one. Well, now. <laughs> Now, I mean, people have living rooms full of, right. you know, Freon-cooled, ASIC-driven, insane monster caching, you know, Bitcoin mining machines. And and this Bitcoin system automatically scales up the difficulty in order to keep the coin creation rate set per its algorithm. And, and, and that's asymptotically approaching a, a, a final maximum. So... Since then, you're not in the game if you just run a computer and say, oh, maybe I'll get lucky. It's like, no, 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 honey. It's That day is you know, way past. Yeah. But very cool technology. Yeah. Um, I missed a note from our, our Mr. Wizard uh, who did another Security Now video. So I, uh, that is, I missed it because he sent me email on Wednesday when I was in the middle of prepping for yeah, last week's podcast. Now, since then, there's been another one. So I just want to remind people about AskMrWizard.com. You can go to AskMrWizard.com and you can click on the Security Now link or you can do AskMrWizard.com slash Security Now. He's got from episode three, Nat Routers as Firewalls. And these, I say, these are animated videos of to, to complement our podcast. And they have our audio, but he's added video to it. Uh, number eight, DOS attacks. He just did the rootkits, number nine on rootkits. Uh, number 10 on open Wi-Fi access points. Number 42, that is podcast 42 on NAT traversal. And he also did one on re a recent podcast, 388, on memory hard problems. So those are there. It's pretty neat. And I, yeah. I just had to also uh, tell people about a piece of freeware 
that I've now been using for a month that I really like on Windows called Sea Cleaner. Oh, it's yeah. by a company. Oh, yeah. Our audience Pir- knows about that very well. Piriform. Piriform, yeah. Yep. I yeah. really like it. I didn't know it was known. Um, I ran it on my own personal machine for the first time yesterday or two. Yeah, I think it was yesterday. It found 775 megabytes of accumulated gunk. In fact, Google Chrome alone was responsible for 430 of 430 of those megabytes. So um, it's very cool. Also, it found 1,126 debris keys in my registry. And when I removed all those, you have to do that successively because sometimes keys refer to keys. So the second pass, it found 33 more. The third pass, 11 more. And the second pass, two more. And finally, no more. One, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, any old machine that you've had for a while, when you uninstall software, the uninstall system tends not to remove registry keys. So they, they tend to accumulate. Anyway, this thing also allows you to view and, and play with your system startup and your browser add-on startup, your scheduled tasks. And it even has a free space wiper for people who want to wipe the free space on their drive. So anyway, it's called C Cleaner. It's freeware. No, it's no, you know, they're not trying to install any junk on your machine and it's not ad supported or anything at all. Very, very clean, good stuff. So I wanted to just to say, hey, I independently discovered it. I'm glad you guys know about it too, you and your... Oh, it's your, very, yeah, very popular amongst our uh, crowd. I don't generally recommend it. Most of that uh, data was just temp files like the cache files on Chrome. Uh, and so that's fine. I mean, deleting temp files is harmless. The, yeah, I, the yeah, I, I registry like keys is a little tricksy. Uh, I found CCleaner is pretty conservative, so you're probably all right. But you got to be careful because yeah. you can. Screw and it does your also in, in, in cookie de- uh, deleting it. Uh, it apparently applies a, some sort of a smart cookie um, algorithm, so it will it will try not to delete the cookies representing your logged on. Um, right. authentication, which is, you know, nice instead of just doing a wholesale cookie expunge. Right. So, By the way, um, I don't know if you saw the article in Ars Technica, but I thought this might be a good subject for a future show. Um, meet the men who spy on women through their webcams. We've talked about the idea, the theoretical oh idea God. that you could access people's uh, computer uh, with a rootkit or something. And apparently there are fairly easy tools, rat tools, they call them, remote administration tools, uh, you remember back orifice in the back in the day? Well, they've gotten much more sophisticated and apparently quite widespread use. Wow. Um, so um, I have, you know, on the radio show, we periodically get calls from people saying, I'm sure there's somebody in my computer. Well, uh, I guess it's it's more widespread than we thought. There are forums where people share pictures they've gotten from people's machines and, oh. and of course, turning on webcams, you know, and things like that. So. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll send you the link. It's at Ars Technica in their Tech Policy uh, Law and Disorder blog. Um, rat tools, and I thought this yeah, might be remote a good, access. Yeah, this might be a good subject for you to, to and, probe. And of course, you know, our, we we've talked about the problem with cams, and I always say just stick a yeah. little stick the sticky part of a post-it note over the webcam if it's something that you're not using all the time or just stick it over there when you're when you know, on when you're not using it. Well so that's it's funny just, that you mentioned that because 
Uh, here's, here's a relevant paragraph from the SARS Technica article. Welcome to the weird world of the ratters. They operate quite openly online, sharing the best techniques for picking up new female slaves. That's what they call uh, them. And uh, avoiding that most unwanted of creatures, old perverted men in public forums. Even when their activities trip a victim's webcam light and the unsettled victim reaches forward to put a piece of tape over the webcam, the basic attitude is humorous. Ha, you got us. On to the next slave. Wow. Yeah, pretty creepy. Um, I guess you could use, even use frosted scotch tape, come to think of it. Although I like the, the, the reusable stickiness of a post-it note. Yeah. You don't put it on the camera lens, just over it, <laughs> above it. <laughs> oh, Lord above. And actually, I saw there are starting to be computers with this, with the little doors over the camera. Which Yes, that's so nice idea. to have a shutter. You, want, you really want a little, a little shutter. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And keep it closed unless you're act, act, actively using it. Um, uh, we got another tweet from uh, uh, suggesting a Java acronym uh, for J-A-V-A, of course. Just another valueless add-on. So that's yes. pretty good, too. Yes, yes. And I don't have time, Lord knows, to, pl- to mess with this, but there is something cool happening that I just wanted to give our listeners a heads up for those who would be interested. And that is over on Kickstarter, there's something called the Mojo Digital Design for the Hobbyist. It is a hobbyist-grade, very nicely put-together F. PGA platform, Field Programmable Gate Array. A Field Programmable Gate Array, I think it's using a, it's a, using a late model Spartan FPGA chip. Um, I think $55 uh, gets you uh, like the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, he's already way past their uh, the amount of money that they were going to ra- they were hoping to raise so that and they've made so much extra money have they've had so much more pledged that they're adding new features and things now because they can afford to but you know a, a so there will be software for programming it you know a field programmable gate array is basically software controlled digital design so you can design gates and logic and counters and you know a little simple computer for example all in software, download it into this thing, and it dynamically configures this uh, the, the, this chip. It has a ton of I.O., 50-some I.O., you know, lights and buttons and analog inputs, and it just looks very cool. So for anyone who, you know, thinks that would be fun to play with, I wanted to give you a heads up. Mojo Digital Design for the Hobbyist uh, is the link over at Kickstarter. And... I found a really neat story, something I something I hadn't ever seen before uh, about Spinrite, where he said backups are not always practical. Uh, from Howard Matthews, he's obviously a listener. He said, years ago, I landed a great job working for a well-known PC manufacturer. He's not telling us whom uh, in their R&D department. My job, and this is an interesting job, was to create the pre-install bundles, the drive images that were then squirted onto each new computer as it got to the end of the production line. The Ew, images you got contained... your drive bundle on my computer. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> the images contained an installed version of Windows along with drivers and a bundle of games and other apps that came free, unquote, with the machine. Yeah, right. And, he, and think about the problem, though, of doing that. He said, it was a fascinating job, 
because different machine configs needed to have different bundles of software on them. I had to examine the way each game or app installed itself so that I could later, quote, install, unquote, the software automatically by just copying files and adding stuff to the Windows registry. Apps with copy protection systems were often very tricky. You'd start with two identical blank drives, install Windows on both, install the app on one of them, and then compare them to see what had changed. Once you knew which files were, went there and what changes the app made to the registry and other system files, you could then create a batch file that would be able to silently and quickly drop a, quote, installed, unquote, version of the app on a new drive. <laughs> hey, Leo, somebody's got to do this. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. He says, it felt like legalized cracking. Yeah, yeah. In some cases, it could take a couple of days to fully dissect even a single app like this, Lotus Notes, can you imagine, being a prime example. And backing up the drives you were working on just wasn't practical. Some apps seemed to know they'd been copied to another drive, even if you used cloning software to supposedly copy the drive byte by byte. And, of course, we were throwing hard drives around the place all the time, plugging and unplugging them, reformatting, trying again, more plugging and unplugging. Many drives, and here's his point, bit the dust from the sheer physical demands we put on them and, and did so without notice. Until the day my boss, Duncan, bought a copy of Spinrite. Instead of trying to back drives up, we just spin-righted them all every few nights. Spinrite kept those drives going for ages. And more importantly, it told us when the drives were getting a little too knackered so we could take them out of commission before being tripped up by them. It was like night and day. We still threw the drives around with abandon, but Spinrite was like a guardian angel, restoring and protecting them as we went. You changed the way we worked, Steve, and saved us a huge amount of hassle and worry. The company is gone now, but no one in the R&D department left without having learnt about Spinrite. Thanks, dude. That's awesome. Signed, signed Howard. Yeah. So thank you, Howard, for sharing that with everyone. Yeah, yeah nice story. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we've got questions. Steve's got answers in uh, Security Now, episode 395. Five, in another month, we'll hit 400. Coming up on, uh, oh, 400. I like round 400. number. Don't know what it means. We, I told, you know, uh, they just celebrated 100 episodes in, last night on All About Android. I said, you know, anything less than a few hundred, we don't really. <laughs> we got shows in the where, thousands, kid. Where, where are you and Dick? You must be in, in, into the triple digits. Uh, oh, yeah, 1,400 With, plus. Yeah, uh, I think it's 14.9, something like that. But it was, it was you know, that was because it was a daily show. Right. I'm right. sure TNT is, is... Yeah, no, it's weekly now. We made it weekly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I bet your TNT is uh, is up to that. Or I'll never be soon. able to catch up, though. Darn it. No. And we're well, not making us daily. That would kill me. How would we get to 1,400? It'll be like years. We, we, we could cheat. We could just, when we get to 400, we could add a, Skip. a, 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 a one on front. <laughs> no. Our show is brought to you by Carbonite.com. Online backup done right, as Steve has uh, verified 
You can turn on trust no one encryption. Only you have the key at Carbonite.com. Now, as always with that, that means there were some limitations to the kinds of things you can do. Um, for instance, one of the nice things about Carbonite is it's uh, cloud storage. So when you back up your data with Carbonite, you can access it on any computer. Just log on to your Carbonite account or use their free uh, apps on uh, Android and iPhone or the tablets. Uh, I just think Carbonite is a great solution as part of your overall plan for disaster. You need to plan for disaster. You hope it doesn't happen, but you'll be glad if it happens that you've got a backup on Carbonite. It's automatic. It's continuous, so you don't ever have to think about it. It's always backing up to the cloud. Uh, online backup. Uh, and it's very affordable, $59 a year for everything on your computer. So that means you've got cloud storage for all your folders, all your personal stuff, and a backup. Easy to restore. You just log on to the account, press restore, and boom, your data is back. And that's a nice uh, feeling for peace of mind. I want you to try it free for two weeks. It does use your bandwidth, of course. It's very polite in terms of bandwidth and CPU usage. It stays out of the way. But it's a good idea to try it with your connection. See how it works. Go to Carbonite.com and use our offer code SECURITY now. And as a little thank you, if you do decide to buy, I think you will, You'll get 14 months for the price of 12, two extra months when you use the offer code security now for the trial. Carbonite.com. What's on your hard drive? Can you afford to lose it? If not, back it up. Do it right with Carbonite. Offer code is security now. Questions for Mr. G. Are you ready? Okay, so here's what I think, Leo, um, because I am conscious of the time and that you've got another podcast to do. Um, we, how about if we did half now? Sure. And half then we'll do week. the second half next week sure. because I think the topic for next week, I'm going to – actually, the last question of this week was going to be a lead-in about distributed hash tables. Uh, this is the, the directory system that Tor uses. I mentioned when we were talking about Tor last week that a directory, you know, that, that services posted their existence in a directory. And several people said, directory? How can you have a directory in Tor? So this uses – Tor uses a technology called distributed hash tables that we've never ever spoken about that I thought would make a great topic and I think I can I can do that and the the other five questions um in in one podcast next week. So let's do five today and that'll give us a nice a nice wrap and then we'll do the next we'll do the second half next week. Sounds good to me. Starting with Nicholas Bauer, Atlanta, Georgia. He's been thinking about loops and parallels. Steve this week when you explained, which was last week, I think, the ability to paralyze chained, I'm sorry, parallelize, very big difference, to paralyze and parallelize chained ciphers, I think you missed the key part that was confusing the questioner, which is that usually you aren't trying to compute just one answer, but thousands of them. The idea, which I think was lost in the questioner, is to implement something like an assembly line. As soon as unit A has computed the output from input 1 and passed it off to unit B, unit 1 can immediately work on input 2. Thus, if the hash we are trying to break is 1,000 chained iterations, let's say we can do one iteration per second, normally it would be 1,000 seconds. If instead we implement in hardware 1,000 dedicated units, each of which computes one iteration and passes it along to the next unit, we can do 1,000 units simultaneously. So, in other words, a million uh, hashes per second. And I think you understood that. I don't think that was what we were talking about. But thanks to keep up the great material. Help inspire me to do some hobby programming and be fully conscious of security 
while doing so. The, the one thing that I liked about this and the reason I, I saw it was assembly line. That's all anyone ever has to think. Right. That, that, that's the most perfect model of this notion of pipelining. I mean, that's what an assembly line is. It's right. a pipeline right. of work. And, and so if you are ever trying to e- either conceptualize it for yourself or explain this to somebody else, that's it. The, the, the analogy is the assembly line. It's, it's perfect. Sunil Joshi, Chicago, Illinois, reminds us about One ID. Steve, I, uh, I remember you talking about One ID some time ago. I see their site still functional and One ID being offered. Uh, does he uh, is One ID uh, an open ID uh, hosting site? Mm, no. no. What is it? So, okay, um, I these are guys who there's a big team of people. I, I wish them no ill, but they are trying to do a proprietary replacement of for website logon. No, 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 and sorry. that's the problem. It's it's a, a there's a serial entrepreneur Steve Kirsch whom I've met who's been successful previously on some major endeavors. Uh, he did frameworks you may remember that that was a major publishing platform and other successful things in the past and he's decided he wants to solve the problem. Well, all you know my hats off to him, but it's proprietary. And so what this means is that you, in, in order to implement it, it requires websites to support his solution. And only people who have his solution can use his solution. And, and I have I've, several times I've gone back wondering how they're doing. And today, the most recent list of websites you can use is something called Portre- Port- Portrero, Authentic pre-owned luxury, whatever that is, <laughs> used luxury. NVX, don't know what that is. There's a there's a site called shopperschoice.com under which is barbecueguys.com. Their their slogan is "We smoke the competition." <clears throat> I like it. Uh, <laughs> Ultimate patio, cookwarecenter.com, home appliance center, and sportsmanguys.com. You get you can log on with one ID if that's where you want to go. Uh, eembroiderymystuff.com, Bikes for the World, The League of Women Voters, Earth Charter U.S., Children Can't Wait, and Bill Foster. And that's it. Well, and, so, there, and there's an existing uh, uh, technology that is open and uh, widespread use called OpenID that really is the same thing, right? There's no reason to well, do some proprietary well, solution. No. Um, well, okay, so... OpenID attempts to use the existing infrastructure um, to solve the problem. Steve's solution is better. I mean, it is, it's app one ID is like, it's better. It's very good crypto. I've asked him for documentation. They've never been able to share any. He sends me pictures of arrows pointing at things, yeah, no, but know. you know, so doesn't it's do it. Proprietary. I don't understand. And that's that's the point. Yeah. Is that you know, if the whole world were already using it and it was anyone could, then it would make sense. You know, Microsoft but, you know, tried this and nobody did it. I don't know why somebody with, else with, should with passport. With passport. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. So anyway, uh, that's where they stand. I don't. They're not getting off the ground. I mean, there. This is where they've been. It's been more than a year. And the and the point is, why would a site like Amazon or eBay want to add that when, first of all, you have a real chicken and egg problem, and it's gonna confuse people. It's like, yeah. wait, wait. You know, do I need some new something or other? I mean, it's just. Right. It's just I don't see the value to the site. So. It's gonna. It's a tough sell. I mean, again, I wish them luck, but I don't think that a that a proprietary solution to logging on should win. I don't think it will. No market because for it. I, you know, yeah, yeah. John Chabowski, Poughkeepsie, New York, is wondering how future proof our LastPass and similar services. Love the show. Blah blah blah. What if LastPass goes out of business? My entire online life is tied up in this excellent service, but I'd still prefer not to have the company's well-being act as a single point of failure. And I'm not sure if LastPass is completely standalone. You still need to use their servers to maintain your personal blob of encrypted information, right? Of course, I don't expect this to happen anytime soon, but hey, what happens 10, 20 years down the road? That's a good question. It is. And I like this because it, it reflects the fundamental tension of the cloud, I mean, for all the benefits it offers, with it comes some concern like this. Um, LastPass in particular is very nice because the blob is encrypted and cached locally in all of the various platforms, services, machines where you use it. Yeah, because I could go offline and still use LastPass. Yes. And the, so so that's very cool. And the 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 format is so clean and well designed and documented that they even have a, a at least for Windows and I would imagine other platforms, I don't know for sure, a, a a blob browser where you can export your blob to your machine and view it in a standalone LastPass viewer. Right. Which is also very cool. So, you know, they've done everything they can to, to solve this problem for us if they, if they just, like, went up in a puff of smoke somehow. Um, but so, so, so the value they add is the centralized cloud interconnectivity where if I, you know, if I change a password on my, you know, in Firefox on my Windows machine, and then I'm using Chrome over on a Mac the next day, it knows. It got the update. And so when I log in, it's it synchronized. I mean, that's just very cool, the notion of, you know, cloud-based sync. So LastPass in particular, I think, has done everything they could to to make it a non-emergency if they disappear. If they did, if they puffed a smoke and... You know, we're still able to log on to everything we can now. We wouldn't. We would lose the the inter device synchronization which they provide, but it wouldn't be the end of life. I mean, and you know, right right now, LastPass knows way more about my passwords than I do. I I don't even try. It's just like okay, that's that, that. As long as the site accepts 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 the gibberish that I just gave it, and LastPass remembers it for me, everybody's happy. But it is it is you know attention i would argue though that 20 years down the road i mean that's a long time we didn't have the internet 20 years ago zero you know didn't exist at all so 
we're not going to have this problem in 20 years. Well, I don't think we'll have it in 10 or 5. We're, there will be, be a, solution. a solution. Yeah. And yes. that's one of the reasons I like LastPass is I give them a buck a month for the premium account. They have a business model. Um, yes. You know, it just seems like they're going to be here long enough that we can <laughs> hand it off to something else. I just recently moved, because of the Evernote thing, I moved all of my you know, passports, secure, social security numbers, all my, you know, personal documents into secure notes on LastPass. So now I really and am in there. You were right also. Uh, there was a big dialogue in the GRC news groups about this following on our dialogue about it last week, Leo. And and the consensus was, you know, LastPass had, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, Evernote, this whole weird we don't. We can't export more than sixty-four bits. Um, there are a couple good crypto guys who hang out in the news group, and they were talking about, you know, if they're using RC two with sixty-four bits, eh, that's you know, it's really not the crypto that you want. So, you know, your notion of getting it out of Evernote yeah. and putting it into LastPass yeah. really does make more sense. You still get the the cloud sync, but you get really strong crypto. And you got to wonder what I mean, like I, I did some research after we spoke. And sure enough, in the Evernote docs, they say, well, we don't have enough staff to do, go through the hassle of applying to the State Department or Commerce, rather, uh, to get the, the certificate to allow us to use strong crypto. So we're going to go with 64 bits. Yeah, uh, what? Whatever. Okay, my browser, you know, is using 128 when it talks outside the country. I'm so, gonna, I'm gonna know. keep using Evernote. I love Evernote, but I'm not gonna store anything secure in there anymore. I think that makes perfect uh, I'm sense. I'm gonna use LastPass, yes. and really, you know, I tell you, I, I started using a Chromebook as for a review, um, and it's so great because while the Chromebook is just Chrome OS, it's just a browser. As soon as you install LastPass into it, you feel like you're right at home because I can immediately do everything I wanted to do. My data's there. So it really is nice to have that. The only thing I'm, and I'll have to look into this, is there is an open source alternative called KeePass, K-E-E-P-A-S-S. And it's conceivable that it would be better to go with an open source alternative if it had the functionality. I know it doesn't. But if it had all the functionality of LastPass... It probably then, doesn't have the... Does it have the cloud glue? That's a good question. I don't know if That's a new ready. term, by the way, Leo. We cloud, glue. cloud glue. Now. I don't cloud know glue. Yeah. about cloud glue. <laughs> he got cloud glue on I'll his head, so you got to ask about watch cloud it. glue. Um, I'm not sure how they do the synchronization. Well, that's the cloud glue. Yeah, don't I'm, know I'm not sure that. how they do that. It may be that what you do, and I suspect this is what you do, is you use something like Dropbox to store the, the encrypted blob... Ah. And then have that synchronized to all your machines. Then your, ven your, your, your cloud vendor neutral for right. the glue. It's just a blob. Yeah. yeah. Of, so, of glue. So yeah. uh, that's an interesting idea. Um, so, yeah. So everybody in the chat room is agreeing that that's exactly it. Is you have this blob. That you're responsible ah. for gluing it. You know, in other words, you use something like Dropbox or share file or some form of uh, sharing it with the rest of uh, your machines. And otherwise, the functionality is similar. It's a cross-browser, cross-platform, fills in the forms, uh, offers uh, passwords, It's blah, missing blah, blah. some extensions. There's no Firefox extension. I mean, yep. this is Thank the you beauty. Very much, then. Yeah, this is the beauty of LastPass <laughs> is yeah. it, it works on every platform automatically, kind of. And they they are a business. Their their motives are clear. They've withstood attacks. They've acted responsibly. They have full disclosure of all of their technology. Right. Uh, you know, Joe's Joe's. I mean, Joe's present and working in the 
forums and 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 because there is you know we're paying them a buck a month there's money there for them to add support as new platforms right. come out and i'm I've always nervous blackberry when a, a company like this that i'm relying on doesn't have a business model because <laughs> like well, that means they may not be around for a few years yeah. daryl in kansas reminds us of the wacky mailinator.com service steve i think this is an excellent tool to put in your toolkit. I thought listeners would like it, too. The geek factor is high. Here's what the website says about Mailinator.com. Use any inbox you like. No sign-up. Inboxes are created when the email arrives for them. Make up email addresses on the fly. Make up addresses. Give it to somebody else. Come here. Check the inbox. Adam feeds for every inbox, so you can push-pull. Give out a Mailinator address anytime you need an email address, but don't want to get spammed. And then he says, thanks for spin right and shields up. Hey, Leo. Mailinator. So it's like a way to create dummy email addresses. Oh, no. Well, okay. First of all, we did speak about this once. And we haven't talked about it for a long time. It's just so loony that it's it just fun. might work. <laughs> I would never have come up with this because it's so wrong. But, but there's a purpose. And that is, so here's Mailinator.com. And it will accept email to sent to it from any account incoming. So an SMTP server connects to it and says, I've got mail for uh, Leo and Steve at Mailinator.com. And Mailinator says, good, send it. And, and Mailinator accepts it. And that's what it does. It does. You don't have to. There doesn't have to be a StephenLeo.MailInTheAir.com account. It accepts any mail for any account, anything, and just puts it in a database. And then you can go to MailInTheAir.com, and right on the front page is a form, you know, a little field. You put in StephenLeo.com or StephenLeo and click get, you know, check my mail, and it shows it to you. There's no security. There's no account. There's, I mean, it's, that's what it does. Now, the mail lasts, uh, I think he's, I think it was overnight or maybe it was a week. I don't remember how long it was, but so it's not guaranteed to be there forever. It, and you not only can you RSS or Adam feed, you, now they support pop. So you could have your own, your own web client polling Mailinator.com, you know, once a minute or so for a certain mailbox at Mailinator.com, StephenLeo.com. And anything that arrived there, your client would pick up. Again, no security. So anybody can read that mail, but that's fine. You just don't have passwords sent there. Yes. (laughs) And that's the key is I'd forgotten about it. And so for certain things, it makes so much sense. Yeah. If, you, if you have an absolute throwaway confirmation link for some random place that has annoying you that you've got to, you know, prove who you are, you can just type in, you know, QWERTY at, well, that one, that one's probably taken. Actually, it's kind of fun, Leo. Go to mailinair.com and put in, I put in noodles and there was no, there was no noodles. Uh <laughs> But then I put in Charlie, and Charlie's got a bunch of mail. 
And uh, you know, so you can just put them. Put oh, try monkey. I wonder what monkey's oh, got. Oh, monkey's got a ton of mail. I'm sure. <laughs> so really, this would be mail as only one thing. Mail that came to uh, Charlie at mailinator.com. You can, by the way, it will accept mail from any. So you could actually point your domain, your uh, your uh, uh, what would be the MX record to mailinator, and so you could create your own uh, email address that doesn't say mailinator. And and still use it as a throwaway. But the key again is do not use this for anything that would, for instance, be a password recovery. Because, well, you're just that would be dumb, right? It is. So it is what it is for. What it is is, I think, wacky. I mean, it's wonderful. It's crazy. It's just but- for sending for using as a throwaway address where you know it's just going to be spammed. Basically. Yes, and well, and. Anybody can see what was sent there. So, you know, the normal purpose of email for, as, as the example you gave, password recovery, is that the assumption is only you can access your email. Therefore, something very critical, I mean, it's like the only email and, uh, and email loop is the, except from now we have cell phone usage that is so ubiquitous that that's now becoming a solution. I, when I logged into Google Docs just now, um, earlier to produce the docs, Google wanted just an update on my authentication, so it sent me a six-digit code to my, to my phone. And I, you know, it came through the loop, I typed it in, and, and Google was happy. So, you know, that's nice. We have that now, but email is still what most people use. And it's because only we are able to access our email account, hopefully, that you're able to use it for this kind of thing. So Mailinator is not that. It's just, you know, it's just crazy that you just make up a mailbox and send stuff there, and it's there for a while, for like a day, <laughs> and then it just kind of, you know, it expires off the other end. You've been Mailinated. I think it's very cool. And now you want to jump to number 10, which will lead us into next week. Excellent. Spencer writing from the... Canonical, undisclosed location. <laughs> Posts two questions about Tor 2. And now we know why his location was undisclosed. Uh, Steve, uh, you do a great show on Twit, but I've got questions. One, in your explanation of the old version, Tor, you never told us how the return packets make their way back to the anonymous user. How does that happen? Two, now we do have a whole show on that subject, by the way. Two, you said that these new Tor services are published in the Tor directory... So users can find them. Well, where is this directory? And wouldn't attacking it bring the whole service system down? Okay, so first one is that Tor nodes do record the information necessary to locally return the an, an incoming packet to where it came from. So, so in the same way that a node knows who sent it and where it is being sent to, but nothing, and and it knows its own crypto. If you think about it, as long as it, as long as it retains some, some, some short-term memory of that information, when the returning packet arrives from the, from the place it sent the, it, it sent the packet out to, it, it identifies what that's a, a, a connection from in sort of in the same way that NAT routers work. We talked about NAT routing tables where the, the, the act of the packet leaving the NAT router from one of many machines behind it allows the NAT router when the packet comes back from the outside 
to determine which machine should receive it. So it's very much the same way, just a simple short-term routing table that allows it to do that. And it also then re-encrypts the packet with its, with its private key at, before it sends it to the place where it received it from. And that so the chain is reversed in a, in a similar fashion. Then it gets back to the user who has exactly the same kind of onion that they sent. And since they know the sequence of machines it came through, they sequentially decrypt each, each round or each layer of the onion with each, each node's public key and get the returned data. So that's number one, just basically backtracking and just, just remembering sort of some routing information the way a NAT router does with the addition of the crypto. And the Tor services published in the Tor directory. Um, this is done, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and this will be the, the subject for the first half of next week's podcast. We will wrap up next week's podcast with the five questions we didn't get to today. Um, and that is the technology of distributed hashing tables. Um, the, the key concept, which is cool, is that you locate something by its hash. And that's all I'll say for now. I can't wait. And we'll talk about it in detail. Next you week. know we will. Get your propellers ready. <laughs> I love this show. Steve Gibson, he is our explainer-in-chief, the most geeky show on the network, and I'm mighty proud of that. You can uh, listen to Security Now every, t what is this, Wednesday, <laughs> 11 a.m. <laughs> what day? Where am I? Who am I? What am I doing here? 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC. Note the time change. Uh, we're in summertime now here in the U.S., so that means uh, UTC, which doesn't adjust for summertime. Maybe someday we won't either. But that for means you were actually early for the podcast, Leo. UTC yeah. I was. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what do you say? Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna. Somebody bit my head off. Uh, anyway, the uh, the uh, best thing to do is watch live if you can. But if you can't, don't worry. We've got audio and video available on demand after the fact at uh, twit.tv slash sn. You know, Steve has 16 kilobit audio versions for those of you who really uh, you know have bandwidth caps, or even text versions. He does. Uh, he pays for transcriptions, human transcriptions written by Elaine, uh, and you can get those at grc.com. While you're there, you might want to check out Spinrite, world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. If you've got a hard drive, you've got to have Spinrite. You can also get all the free stuff uh, Steve makes available to us, including the UPnP tester on Shields Up, which you really ought Ooh, to and that, run. That count keeps going up, too. I saw it the other day. I think we're like 3,200-something. I think cow. that's what it was last. So That's 3,200 routers who are prey to the UPnP exploit from outside the router. Yep, I did receive a note from somebody uh, who had two D-Link routers hacked from the outside. And so wow. one um, was had a um, uh, some sort of Trojan installed in it wow. that had taken it over, and it was being used as a Trojan relay, and the other one had all of its ports opened up. So it was wide open to the Internet. Wow. Yikes. Wow. Shields up. Run it grc.com and check out all the other great stuff there including the feedback section grc.com slash feedback if you want to ask a question for future episodes we'll save those other five do them uh, next week or the weekend whenever we get around to it yeah yeah thank you steve 
Leo, always a pleasure. Talk to you next week. Security now.